Warning. The following podcast may contain explicit language. It will certainly contain heterodoxy, political pandemonium, and graphic depictions of alcohol use. Listeners may rest assured that at the time of recording this episode, all participants have nowhere to drive. The Cocktail Party Congress encourages you to drink and think responsibly. In vino veritas. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. My ancestors couldn't. I can. And my children will. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt? Give us your tipsy, your stewed, your addled masses. It is the Cocktail Party Congress, the only, to our knowledge, political discussion podcast with a three-drink minimum. I'm Dan Caves. And I'm J.T. Andrews. And uh, what are we drinking tonight, J.T.? I figured we could just plow right into this and not waste our, our listeners' time after last uh, last episode's marathon of a discussion. Yeah, I, th- I think it ties right into what, what we're talking about. Uh, tonight's topic is going to be uh, American corporatism. So I figured we needed a drink that represented uh, big business. So I have selected the classic gin martini. Mm. Now... The gin martini. A lot of people don't like gin for some reason. I don't know why. It's probably because they. It's probably because their very first shot of it was exactly that—a shot of it of warm gin. That's a tragedy. I know. Gross. It's it's not gross. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) It's really no. It's 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 not there for shooting. It's there for it's it's there for mixing. It's a sipping drink. It is. (laughs) All right. So for our listeners who want to drink with us at home. First of all, make sure you have nowhere to drive. Yeah, we, we these are good. We absolutely yeah. This is a very right. boozy drink you'll find. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what you're gonna need? You're gonna need a uh, first off. You're gonna need a mixing glass. So I would just take a uh, a rocks glass, a work, or a lar- large vessel. You're gonna need something to to mix the drink in. And you're going to take that. Uh, it works best for you. Put it in the freezer. Uh, get it nice and cold because this is it's. A drink that should be served cold. The colder your uh, your glass is, the better it will be. Yeah, you should be chilling so everything along the way. Oh, really. yeah. Yeah. So you're going to take that chilled glass, you know, fill it with ice, uh, and then in, into this glass, you're going to put a combination of gin and vermouth. Now, the quantities depends on the size of your martini glass, and it's also going to depend on your the proportions are going to depend on what you like. So right now, I have a three-parts gin to a one-part white vermouth. Uh, yeah, make sure you're getting the dry white vermouth and not the sweet red vermouth. This, this yes. will make a difference. Very much so. Which, that's another cocktail, and some people might like it, but it not is. for us. It is. This is not the classic <laughs> martini that you would get no. on a business lunch. <laughs> so, exactly, or four of them if you want. Yeah. So, it's going to be three parts gin, one part white vermouth. You're going to put that in your chilled mixing glass with ice. Uh, give it a nice stir. Uh, now this works best with the gin at room temperature. Uh, I like to refrigerate the vermouth, but you actually want a little bit of dilution with the ice. You want a little bit of the water to get in there to open everything up. So you're going to stir that with the ice and then you are going to strain that into a chilled martini glass, which you could have it sitting on the counter with some ice in it, or you can pop it in the freezer. I like to pop it in the freezer. Uh, strain all the ice out and put it into the, your martini glass, and then you are going to garnish that with either a an olive, uh, a green olive to be specific. I like those really large martini olives because I love olives. Or you can put in a twist of lemon if you do not care for olives very much. Hmm. I'm using that is the that is the classic gin martini. That sounds amazing, JT. I'm uh, honestly I'm not a fan of olives, but I am using olives. Because I only enjoy olives if they've been soaked in gin first. And I love olives, so olives soaked in gin is, like, twice as good. Uh, and you mentioned that you want to stir the drink, but you still want a certain amount of dilution. Why don't you want to shake it? I mean, James Bond is rolling in his his dozens I, of graves. 
I don't like shaking it because you don't want to introduce so much air into it because it clouds the drink. It do, it just does not look appealing and like something I would want to drink. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I've heard some myths, some old wives' tales uh, about bruising liquor, which I'm not sure what that actually means. But uh, that I think is the reason why you should be why you should be stirring your drinks. Also, it's going to over dilute. Yeah. It, yes, it will over dilute. Yeah. It will introduce a lot of water and, and a lot of oxygen. So you'll have a watered down drink that's really cloudy and not that appealing to look at. Whereas this is clear as day has just you can see yes. every inch of that olive that I put in there. It, it should and it should look delicious. like a glass of water, but, you know, it isn't, which makes it fun. Yeah, if you put a goldfish in that, it's certainly going to die. <laughs> Speaking of James Bond, uh, there, I, I've also heard a fan theory that the reason he ordered his martinis shaken, not stirred, was to over-dilute them so that his enemies would uh, would like think that he's getting more drunk than he actually is, which I, <laughs> so many things that you could say about, about James let's, Bond just off the top. Yeah. yeah, like the yeah. fact that he's a raging alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but oh, it's one of his many faults. I guess that's slightly clever, but in this case, you do not want that. So, no. if you, I hope that you've all made yourselves a proper martini and you're all drinking along with us, safe in the comfort of your home. And uh, JT, you may, you already broke the seal on what our topic is tonight. We're talking about corporatism, which is a big word. It, it, <laughs> It is. It, it, it might not be the longest word in the English language, but it's certainly a big word. It, it carries, carries a lot of weight. It is. Uh, and it, it, it carries a lot of weight, and it carries a lot of varying definitions. And I, I think that it's probably the best, since you brought it up first. Uh, JT, why don't you get the ball rolling and maybe All right. m- maybe share some of your initial thoughts about what, what is corporatism, what... So what is American corporatism specifically yeah. and all of that? So corporatism, if you look up the definition on, on any number of Internet sites or dictionary, the dictionary definition of corporatism, it's a sociopolitical organization of a society by major interest groups. And I feel like American corporatism is a little bit different from its historical usage. American corporatism... Uh, is hard to define, really. It doesn't really have... It like, it's almost like it doesn't have a definition, but we see its effects. And I think... I, I tend to think that American corporatism is where the corporations play an active role in our politics. That's what I'm starting to think. Hmm. Uh, it's as close of a solid definition as I would want to get. But. Yeah, I think that's what people usually mean when they use the word corporatism. Exactly. So that's what I think we should be talking about, is this idea of American corporatism. Well, I I think that we could broaden that out even further and sort of... I think that the full definition of corporatism, where it's um, organization of government involvement by corporate interest groups is one of the ways I've seen it put. I think that that still, that still applies in our system because that, 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 that could encompass think tanks and special interest groups like MoveOn.org or the Heritage Foundation or CPAC, it, it, lobbying it came organizations. Into, it, it came into really big play uh, in the most recent uh, Supreme Court cases since United versus the, uh, the FEC. Uh, which dealt with a, a conservative, effectively a nonprofit organization uh, that wanted to use money as effectively free speech. Yeah, the, oh, there are a lot of legal concepts that we could that we could get into there. Um, I'll, I'll, oh, I'll also add, this kind of goes back to our discussion in episode two about political parties. Are political parties not constitutionally mandated uh, or defined entities? They are themselves most people don't think of them like this, but they are themselves private, nonprofit corporations. They are. So um, they, they are a, a vital, a vital tool of the of American corporatism, if you want to put it that way. You could most certainly put it this way, um, but most certainly we are feeling the effects as just everyday Americans, where we're seeing effectively the government 
turning in slowly and surely, and we might already be there, uh, turning into more of a, a plutocracy than mm. it is a democracy, where wealth is being used to advance the agendas of political parties, to advance the agendas of uh, corporations through elected officials. Mm. Do you think that that's something inherent to corporatism? Because I think that you can, I think that you can sort of look at it like in a best case scenario where corporatism is a good thing, and then we might be living in the worst case scenario. So just to back up from that, the best case scenario I think is that it's a it's a system for outsourcing our political involvement to organizations. Like when it's working well, it, these these corporate bodies like political action committees they will represent our support their supporters interests in a responsive manner it, you, you can you, you can you can deal with your political system by cutting a check to the aclu or cutting a check to move on.org or to cpac or to the heritage foundation and you can feel confident that they're going to advocate for whichever policy positions that you that you see in them that you would support. I think that that's a best case scenario. And I think that might be when corporatism is meant as a good thing. That's what people mean by it. But it's a, it's a very idealistic way of looking at it, but then it is. But as oh, soon no, as we is. introduced money into the mixture, it is uh, the, the greed runs rampant. I mean, and mm-hmm. then, then you can get into the worst case scenario, which is really like a usurpation of political power by what are ultimately unaccountable and misleading actors in the system. And I think misleading is one of the most important parts for this because um, we come from a generally conservative background, but I think I I, I, I am assuming that you have the same dislike of the Koch brothers as I do. Oh, of course. And, and I think that they are a prime example of this. I mean, I've been I've been reflecting on the ways that they have been influencing our political system, and w- one of the ways that they've done it is I well, I mentioned <laughs> well here here here's the and this is really pernicious of them. It's very subtle and it's it's kind of insidious and it's kind of genius. They put they put the B in subtle. They put the B. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Um, but one of the ways that they've done it and the ways that they've snuck it in, and this could be getting into conspiracy theory, but I, I, I trust me, this is kind of going on. <laughs> uh, I mentioned Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute, which at one point in their respective histories were pretty well respective conservative and libertarian respectively think tanks and research organizations. I mean, they, they had research departments they would look into policy initiatives that they support they would create uh they would write white papers about why certain policy initiatives should be enacted and they would they would just sort of put them out into the culture and whatever you think of their policy aims there was once a point in their history where that was the extent of their influence is that they were they were think tanks in the classic sense but the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute have both been bought out by the Koch brothers. And Oops, that's right. Their their agenda is wearing those organizations like a skin. And they've really warped those missions much much the chagrin of the former owners of Heritage and Cato. I mean if it, you can you can go and find uh, like especially, um, I was most familiar with Cato when they were taken over by the Koch brothers. Uh, Ed Crane was the—I um, forget his title—CEO or president of the Cato Institute. But uh, yeah, I don't remember. I think I, it was president. It's been years ago, but <laughs> but he he was absolutely like after that deal was made, he he it was much to his chagrin that this was happening. And now now those organizations have become very much do what we say or else organizations, which. Which is that's, a user pretty dangerous for being a think tank. It really is, um, and it's but it's it's hidden, it's subtle, and it's effective, which is terrifying. Um, and so now they can it, use this that, is reminding that me institutional. Of, no, go on. I was going to say this was reminding me of what 
Thomas Jefferson once wrote about uh, about the the rise of almost corporations and uh, the banks and just the influence of money on on American politics. And he once wrote that uh, or referred to the selfish spirit of commerce that knows no country and feels no passion or principle but that of gain. And I feel like this is re- this really comes out in in the Koch brothers. Yeah. And oh, especially that. And th- that's why it's especially troubling to me how they're using Heritage and Cato is that they're not just use like they're not just doing what I just described them doing. They are like I said wearing those institutions like a skin and using the the institutional respect that conservatives and libertarians have had for those those groups they're, to, to, they're to giving, sort of pull a fast one on on people. They're using the almost the ethos that was developed by both of these institutions in their nonprofit status yeah. and using that credibility to their advantage because it's all of a sudden their agenda is being pushed by these organizations and everybody's like, well, it's coming from these organizations, these um, these fairly respected institutions yeah. so it must be true institutional Instead, muscle exactly yeah, that, that, that is if you establish credibility uh then it furthers your argument um and by using using institutions that are already credible buying them out and effectively using them for your gain it, it is in an attempt to gain that credibility, so that hoping that it rubs off on them. Yes, they're they're effectively using it as a skin. In the tradition of mergers and acquisitions in the business world, <laughs> you're, you're, you're absorbing the the infrastructure of those of those institutions. Um, yeah, it's just absolutely it, it's it's tr- it's troubling because I mean, yeah, I don't even know how to finish that that sentence. <laughs> well, I I guess I. I guess it isn't troubling if you agree with what the Koch brothers uh, with the Koch brothers' vision of America, which I, I honestly do not. They, they, they essentially want a, a, a private America, like a, a complete, like a, a they fully want to privatized break, America. Yeah, a completely privatized America. I mean, it's just if we did did RoboCop teach us nothing? I know. I, well, that that goes to even more corporatist distortions of our system. I mean, there are industries that really shouldn't exist, but by the Pri- virtue... Private prisons. Private, private pri- prisons yes. for one. Was, they should not exist. That. Yes. Th- th- there, there are, in my view, and this is... Yeah, private prisons are absolutely a, an example of that. And conservatism, I think, needs to reimagine itself. And one of the ways it should reimagine itself is there... I think that there's a diff- there's a meaningful difference between small government which has been the buzz phrase for decades now and limited government and I think that limited government is where the virtue really is and it is that to me is the idea that there is a short list of things that the federal government and the government in general is responsible for and that since it is responsible for it it should be the sole responsible party and prisons is exactly one of those parts of it. It's very troubling in America. It's very troubling in America when you consider that there are companies out there that are literally making profit off of people that are incarcerated. Yeah. Now, and these same people have lobbyists that push for things like uh, continuing the, the outlawing of marijuana and other, uh, other mind altering substances yeah because victimless crimes with exactly victimless crimes where if they no longer have people incarcerated for these victimless crimes they lose out on the opportunity to make money Mm. and it's it's really tragic that we've reached that level uh where we are willing to make money off of things like this we should not be making money off of our prisoners uh it's it's being putting up a major roadblock to things that should be legalized and you know prisoners that really should be set free because they have harmed really no one 
through a possession of an eighth of an ounce of marijuana. Not even and that sometimes. I mean... Exactly. And there, people are yeah. serving years in prison because of this. Yeah. And they're working for these major corporations, making them money for very little cost. It's a perverse anything. incentive, I think, is the phrase used in economics. Is it's it The very existence of private prisons and companies like that, and the fact that the government is willing to, for savings purposes... And, and I, think, I think something we could talk about uh, coming up is how the corporate mindset has permeated the functioning of government. I mean, we've all heard the, 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 I think now canard as we're seeing it manifest in the presidency that we have now that um, what we really need is a businessman to run this country. That's that's going to solve all of our problems. They need to run this country like a business. Well, that's actually he's gonna not. Be, he's going to be the savior of the republic. It's not going to be that way, my friends. We're seeing that the ethos, the corporate, the, the very idea of corporate governance is like most corporate governance is dictatorial. And it's not. Maybe in small organizations there is a place for a rigid hierarchy like this. I don't. I, I have different ideas on that, but you know what? In a private corporation, your governance structure is your board of directors' right to lay out. But in a government, that is not really how things are supposed to run. And it's creating more, like, myriad problems now. And the idea of savings at all costs is what I think led to the private prison problem. I. I, I think that that's part of, at least part of the motivation for it, is government realizes that prison, imprisoning thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of people for mostly drug offenses now, it costs a lot of money to keep that running. So why not outsource it? Outsourcing. Like, that, that, that's one of the problems here. And as soon as you do that, you open up an opportunity for a bunch of people to make money off the incarcerated. I mean, yeah. that's prisons are not there to make money. No. They're there to for for two reasons. They're there to effectively punish the guilty and to get the guilty away from everybody else, which I think we need to be focused more so on that that second part of the focus should be to get them away from are the regular law-abiding populace. Well, punishment is one thing, but I think I think we need to put more thought towards rehabilitation, which re- really yes. which really isn't in the interest of a, a private prison industry. I mean, they recidivism almost becomes a business model. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's really sad, but that's how our prison system is uh, is working right now. It is. That's what yeah. we're doing. These yeah. are these are realities. Uh, well, uh, a question for you. I I must admit I didn't do all of my research going into this episode. Um, <laughs> well, under the Obama administration, um, Eric uh, Attorney General Eric Holder had um, he had changed the rules so that federal prisons would not be run on the private model. And I'm I'm curious. I don't know if you did any of the research going in ha- as. Has the Trump take a drink, take a my clicker, and we're up to six? Has the uh, has the him administration changed that at all? <laughs> I I want our I oh, want honestly, our I didn't I didn't research prison reform when I was doing no doing oh, shame episode. on us shame on us but we can oh, we can blow we'll both we can, take a drink for that <laughs> we can blow shame to our hearts shame shame but that's a good no but I'm if that hasn't changed I'll be surprised because that. Especially now with the attorney general that we have now, Jefferson. Oh, by the way, the most Alabama name possible, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, attorney that, general that, of the United States. I mean, that screams he, Southern aristocracy. It really does. I mean, that that man was bathed in mint juleps growing up. Uh, and I like mint juleps. I I do too. I envy his child upbringing if he was bathed in mint juleps. I know. Probably swam in a fountain of them. <laughs> but he's probably the most anti anti marijuana especially uh attorney general that we've had in a while and that that seems to be part of the reason why reforming the war on drugs has been so so hard to do is that you, it's I, I, yeah it's hard to pinpoint it to a single individual 
like Mr. Sessions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is... I feel like he's... There was a rumor ro- floating around the internet for a while that Jeff Sessions had uh, uh, part of his 401k and actually had money invested in the private prison system. This is sort of true, but not really true. Yeah. Uh, he does have, like, a mutual fund where the privatized prison system is like a fraction of a percentage part of it, but it's still yeah. money invested in it. Uh, but <laughs> it, it all goes down to, to it just being in a mutual fund. So I, yeah. I can't really, he doesn't really have that much control over it, over something like that. M- mutual funds are like that. I had a friend in uh, at college who um, he, he, he had invested slightly in a mutual fund it might have been a retirement fund that he had but uh when he looked into the investments uh he he found out that part of his money went to gazprom the russian uh oil conglomerate that like yeah. speaking of corporatism that that's an entire <laughs> system over there i mean that, that that's corporatism married to organized crime essentially but we're we're talking for american, the most part for the most part but we're talking american corporatism for the for the now <laughs> Well, the Russian corporatism is another. I feel like that's another podcast entirely. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, well, yeah, that, that's we we could make this entire episode about private prisons, but I do want to broaden it out. Yes, uh, I I'm getting the same feeling. That, <laughs> that's a good topic, though. I encourage is. our listeners to go out and look up stuff about the privatized prison system. It and is. Have a few drinks before you do it because you're probably going to be shocked by it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we're kind of living in the dark side of of what corporatism can promise us. Uh, see, what other examples can we think of? I mean, the the military industrial complex, as we as we've pointed out, that is it, a it's prime been a major, example. It's been one of the major examples, and uh, I would say going back to the the late fifties and into the sixties. That we really like since Eisenhower first coined the term military industrial complex, uh, we found a lot of uh, congressional districts and uh, states that have these major manufacturing companies for weapons, for armor, uh, for tanks. These are uh, tank. Now, the thing with the tanks, <laughs> especially, is that we have a surplus of tanks. Too many uh, tanks. And the, I know. the military, the Pentagon does not want more. But because uh, this this tank manufacturing company is in a congressman's congressional district, is in a senator's state, they push for to continue manufacturing tanks, and yeah, it, it's, we're exceeding <laughs> the demand for it. And all these tanks are just sitting out there, not being used, which I hope they don't need to be used. No tank armored like tank wars are not really what we're what we're in the pipeline for. Yeah. Oh. But what's what's really funny is that a lot of this this uh military equipment what's suspiciously funny is a lot of this is being bought or given away to local police departments. What is a police department going to do with a tank? Oh, that's true. <laughs> like that... APCs, APCs, armored personnel carriers. They, we have police departments in certain cities that are getting these things. Yeah, I, and, I mean, yeah. I've... And it's it all rolls back to the money that is being sent, spent uh, in a factory in some congressman's district because they, it's just a waste of money. But because of that money-making... Uh, that money-making mentality that we have in this country, especially in our, our elected officials, uh, we're seeing the ugly head of American corporatism. That That's right, right there. And the amazing th- I remember the story that you mentioned there. I, uh, if, if I can find the, the more detailed retelling of it, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but I, if I recall correctly, the member of Congress, when he was told stop sending told by the pentagon stop sending us tanks we don't need enemy tanks why do you keep sending us tanks he came straight out and said we need to continue producing tanks because and this is like a public statement because i have a tank manufacturer in my districts and this will cost us jobs if if we don't produce the tanks like that like and that's the thing about this current administration especially it's it's not like the rules have been changed by them. It's that they and, and actually no full disclosure that story did come from the Obama years, uh, not necessarily an Obama 
initiative but this like this problem is ongoing but like the current political system that we're living in the political insanity that we're living with is that they're not even lying about how it works anymore yeah i mean they come used on. to have the common if, decency if, to lie to us <laughs> if you have this is what we did in world war ii we took a lot of the auto manufacturers and aircraft manufacturers and we turned them into um they manufactured tanks and airplanes for us. Yeah. They manufactured the weapons of war. Why don't we do that in reverse? <laughs> why don't, I mean, if we were able to do it for the time of war, why can't we do it for the time of peace? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, and, th- and that brings up a, a point that... Um, so, in debates over what ended the Great Depression, uh, th- th- there are two competing theories that I'm aware of, and there might be more, but these are the main two, is that the New Deal solved everything. Franklin Delano Roosevelt did everything he could, uh, and you know, all of his policies during the 1930s eventually raised us out of the Great Depression. But the other one is that although those had a slight effect on the economy, what really gave us the economic oomph we needed to lead to the prosperity of the 1950s was World War II. And that a war economy was something that was really stimulus, stimulus, stimulating <laughs> to the economy. And so after the war, economic theories arose that essentially, if I'm not being too straw manny about this, that a, a war, eco- if you can recreate the conditions and the, 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 the benefits of a war economy, maybe even without a war to fight, that is something that is going to to initiate economic growth. I think that that wasn't really... Okay, so maybe that didn't work out too well, so now we just need perpetual war to keep that, that going, you know? Exactly, a it's, perpetual and secretive war that it seems like we have gotten ourselves into. I know. But, if, if anybody but could a write lot of in... This- But if you boil it, a lot of it down to it, it comes down to money and money making. Uh, We're willing almost to put people's lives out there on the line just to make a buck. Yeah. To protect America's uh, financial interests overseas. Or to create a financial interest. I mean. Exactly. To, To create that need for a wartime economy. Effectively, well, yeah. or to create create the the need to warrant that military action. Yeah, once we have it, we have to. We feel a need to justify it. It's it's the old. It, it even goes beyond the idea of when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. It's it's all of these nails. No, forget that analogy. But <laughs> <laughs> all st- these nails look so good to hammer. I know. We need to keep building hammers to deal with all these nails. How about that? <laughs> we need to mass produce the hammer, the $50 hammer. Um. <laughs> but regardless, uh, what we're seeing is uh, really what Thomas Jefferson called that selfish spirit of commerce, uh, where, where we're putting our economy ahead of what of almost the, the moral obligations of our own government, the, the obligation to preserve the liber- liberty of its citizens, to preserve all Americans' rights. And to and not instead, end... We're, fo- we're focusing on the few instead of the many. And to not end... Uh, and that goes to a higher moral problem of not ending lives lightly. We're, we're ending... If, if, you don't, if you don't buy the full nationalistic interpretation of what the, the war is about... This is this is the mass production of suffering for economic gain. The executive branch has essentially the free right to smoke anyone for any terrorism-related reason in any jurisdiction. And any more without a de- formal declaration of war from the legislative branch. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've happily abdicated that power, which is frustrating to see. Long ago. We haven't been in a full state of war, like officially declared no. state of war, since 1945. No, no, not, not since the Second World War. Um, and that, that actually gets to another point of mine of, like, when I was talking about small government versus limited government. Uh, limited government, inc- like, one of the main, per- like, the bailiwick of, of federal power is national defense. National defense and safety and the military. 
And it's a huge percentage of our budget. It is a huge percentage of our budget, but too much of it is outsourced. We, we, we've and outsourced not only to contractors who produce the goods of war, but in some some terrible instances. And we saw this especially during the Iraq War, which I'm I'm sorry for ever having supported. I totally I totally understand the 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 the, the, the devastating effects, like the ripple effects of that war. And um, but what we saw during that war was a lot of private military companies like merc like full blown like let's just call them what they are mercenaries mercenaries we saw them under the employ of the United States government essentially for you know outsourcing the cost of of fighting the war that is something that if the government is going to claim national defense as its sole right it should treat it as sole right full command and no mercenaries i would amend that into the constitution actually no like full command and control over any any military any military action that you are that you are performing like you you should not be creating a profit incentive that makes the united states and like the the government and solely the government responsible for victory as well as our defeats absolutely 100 percent accountability and but a lot of this goes back to that idea of just America's greed, wanting to make money regardless of the moral costs of it. Well, and oh. I, in the best possible, in the most charitable interpretation of of America's role in commerce, it's I, you could say that the point of America and the point of government in general to you know, just being charitable is to provide the safety and stability for the free flow of commerce so that private individuals can engage in in mutually beneficial, self-interested economic activity. But this has been warped into now the government is being essentially manipulated by corporate groups and corporate entities to 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 create. I don't even like how can I put this to to extend the market outside right. of the private sphere. Now, yeah. Cor- it, yeah. Corporations are effectively using their funding and their lobbyists to elect or influence uh, our elected officials in order to advance their own personal interests. Uh, mm. And then they threaten to pull that funding if the politicians don't fall in line with what they want. Uh, so you see the influence of money over their, over the, uh, our elected representatives, over their voting in the legislative branch, uh, simply because this company wants to make a buck. Yeah. I mean, and considering that we have fewer and fewer corporations uh, out there in, in the marketplace, uh, we're seeing a consolidation of a lot of these companies into bigger and bigger and bigger corporations. They're growing more powerful. They, they're absorbing a lot of these other companies that aren't doing so well. Uh, they're merging and merging, and pretty soon you have these really incredibly powerful entities with a lot of money, a lot of money that they can throw around to politicians in order to get what they want to make even more money. And this actually brings me to one of my favorite uh, Teddy Roosevelt quotes. It came out of a speech that he gave in 1910 in Kansas, and uh He said, the Constitution guarantees protection to property, and we must make that promise good, but it does not give the right of suffrage to any corporation. There can be no effective control of corporations while their political activity remains. To put an end to it will be neither a short nor an easy task, but it can be done. Corporate expenditures for political purposes, and especially especially such expenditures by public service corporations have supplied one of the principal sources of corruption in our political affairs. And I think in, in that one uh, that one quote, Roosevelt pretty much pointed out all of the problems that we are having today with American corporatism and corporate rule, what's effectively corporate rule of the government. Do we need a trust buster in office? We do. I, we I'm, do need I'm, another I'm, I'm TR. Agree- I am in agreement with that. We do need another trust buster like 
Theodore Roosevelt. Bull Moose um, 2020. <laughs> exactly. I would love to see a revival of the Bull Moose yeah. part. M- maybe we would have disagreed a lot on foreign policy. Yeah. But as far as domestic policy is conter- concerned, he was about containing uh, these big, effectively containing big business and their influence on the American government. Unfortunately, I think we're going in the opposite direction and... I, I, this just recalls to me one of the most troubling things I've heard on C-SPAN in a long while. It was, it was a couple. It was a month or two ago, and it was the um, the corporate lawyers and some executives from Facebook, Twitter, and Google who were testifying to, in this case, the Senate Intelligence Committee about um, the ways that Russian entities, which just just been indicted by Robert Mueller's grand jury, uh, the Internet Research Agency, and uh, you can find the details of of how that interference went. Um, you can go to the special counsel's website on the Department of Justice website. Uh, maybe I'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, they were testifying about the extent to which those companies had um, any knowledge or uh, input on what was going on and how political our political culture was essentially toyed with by um russian intelligence and at the end of that committee uh, c- uh committee hearing uh the the chair of the committee i believe richard burr he was uh he was essentially telling facebook twitter and google to get to the bottom of what happened and solve whatever needs to be solved by any means necessary and he specifically said if you need an antitrust exemption to do it, let us know. Which was like after a very interesting discussion of Facebook, Twitter, and Google's you know knowledge of and blindness to for profit reasons, Russian interference in our political culture. That was the solution you offer is to essentially say if you need to become bigger corp bigger and more powerful corporations to accomplish an inherently political goal let us know that that just like hit me right in the gut when i heard it It it's like like, red flag everywhere yeah red flag everywhere it's just like red flags rising up from the hills i suppose but um and it ain't the communists this time (laughs) no it's not we we hope actually um, I would I would prefer to have a more moderate solution to American corporatism than that. Um, I don't know if that's at all possible. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to fix American corporatism? We need a lot of campaign finance reform. We, we do. really need to come to grips that collectives are not people. No, and, and that, unfortunately, you mentioned at the very beginning, and this is a this is a very important line of discussion for us. The Citizens United versus a FEC Supreme Court decision. Now, it now to have any meaningful campaign finance reform necessitates a constitutional amendment. You need an amendment to the Constitution to solve the distortion that 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 decision created, which it essentially enshrined corporate personhood in the political sphere so that not, ju- not just corporations but huge unions also yeah uh and all these big conglomerates that are not individuals they're just yeah. big collectives of people and saying that these collectives have free speech rights and are entitled to other rights and i just i don't get it well the constitution were... does not say that my understanding of that decision was that there was two that there were two questions that were decided it is first that the very act of spending money on issue advocacy is political speech which isn't I feel like I'd have to do a little more research on that to do it justice to really discuss that but then it enshrined in the end the idea of personhood for yeah cor- cor- I, I I'm using corporate in the more Wikipedia like the, the 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 full first definition sense of it is a it's an interest group of some kind yes. so so it's going to include think tanks special interest groups unions lobbying organizations and commercial business interests and then and so the, it's sort of inferred from there that um spending money is an act of speech and then corporate groups 
groups generally are associations of individuals, and so then they have the same right as those individuals collectively. And so, like, at this point, because of the Supreme Court's mistaken take on on these issues, I think, a constitutional amendment is... Depends on who put them in office. Yeah, true. But now a constitutional amendment is really all that you can do to really right that wrong. Um, really? And yeah. do you think they're going to go for a constitutional amendment like this? I don't think so, because no. they're making too much money no, off of these I don't think so. And yeah, this is, and not to mention, uh, as, we, as I brought up, the, the Republican and Democratic National Committees are more like, they're more conglomerates of the state, the state organizations. Uh, but still, essentially a nonprofit corporate entity, and they they are beneficiaries just as much of the system and architects of it. Yeah, and so you, how how can you really expect um, the beneficiaries and the let's just say culprits of the problem to actually like deal I would with love the problem? To, I would love to see more exposure and more transparency in our government. For example, the meetings of lobbyists and politicians should be a matter, not only a matter of public record, but they should be recorded. And, <laughs> yeah, they should Good be recorded. That. That, yeah, there's no way that's going to happen, but I would love to see that. I mean, me, me, meanwhile, uh, or, this or president's could... <laughs> White House has essentially, like, didn't they take away the visitor log? I don't know. I do believe but. that this that this administration for the what the White House visitor log is now like privileged information. That, that's for, hilarious. Yeah. Wow. So speaking of moving in the opposite direction, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, there's often that that old idea that popped up on the internet of all the all the politicians should have to wear on their suits corporate logos. Yeah, because that's, a, that's an old like depending joke, on yeah. who's it, it works like just like NASCAR. Drivers. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be great. I would love to see that. Although some of the suits would start getting really, really big. I know. Oh, but it's, think of the think of the core oh, strength they would be building along the way. I mean those those old think of the those old of the tails of the Senate, on their they, they need the cardio. Think of the <laughs> think of the tails on their tuxedos. <laughs> I know we'd have to go back to tails and top hats just to fit all of the endorsements. Yeah, all the top hat just keeps keeps getting higher and higher with the number of corporate logos that appears. Eventually, we'll be back to the Abraham Lincoln stovepipe hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be great. It would be not going to happen, but no, I, not that at would all. be great. No, it wouldn't be. Um, so something I wanted to bring up. Um, because I think that this is one of the ways that, so I think corporatism in some contexts is brought up as a bit of a buzzword. And I think it comes down like, so one of the motivations for using the word corporatism is, oh, let me just see. Let me just see if I can find it. Oh yeah. There is a quotation by, by Say the it. one and only. Big Chinned Generalissimo Benito Mussolini of Italian fascism fame. That and this is something that has been brought up during the Bush administration, and I'm surprised I haven't seen it more in this administration. That and the quotation is supposedly Fascism should rightly be called corporatism, as it is the merger of corporate and government power. And I think that sometimes the word corporatism gets thrown around in order to make the case that we are now living in a fascist system. And it's been fascinating to me to dig into researching what that actually means. And there is something to it, but there's a slightly counterintuitive side to it. And... One of the fascinating discoveries I've made here is that the Italian fascist party in the 1920s and 30s actually believed that corporatism was the most democratic way of organizing society. Can you can you fathom that, JT? That sounds like something the Italians would do. Yeah. So, so just to get into the <laughs> just, just, just to dive into the weeds on this one, I, I've sort of synthesized. So my synthesis of that is that the Italian fascist party believed that representative democracy as it existed was an ineffective way of representing, quote-unquote, the people. 
And by that, I mean that your geographic proximity to someone, the, the, the fact that you live on the same street as someone, does not necessarily mean that you have the same political interests. And so why, why would you vote based on your geographical district? So they believed that corporatism, in, in, the most, in the original sense that we defined it in the very beginning of the episode of um, the sociopolitical organization of a society by major interest groups, also known as syndicates or guilds. And I think that that's an important thing to remember is that in the yep. European context— Something we never had in this country. We never had the medieval guild structure, and that's how that, that's how communities were were represented in in medieval times or in, in the Middle Ages. I know historians don't really like the term medieval anymore, uh, but you would get into you you would associate into a relevant interest group. So the bakers' guild, the smiths' guild, the, all, all of these different the candlestick makers' guild. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and so you would associate into the most relevant interest group that you have, and those were supposedly represented in the fascist government, but eh. If this was ever meant as a truth in, quote-unquote, for as much as you can claim that there is a fascist philosophy, fascist philosophy, in reality, it still turned into what we essentially have to contend with now. It's like... It's and even worse under fascism because it turned into it like all of these different guilds would then in a techno like in a very technocratic sense they would they were supposed to have taken on the responsibilities in the government so the you know, the heavy industry people would be doing certain things and you know all all of the different interest groups but in the end it really just resulted in a mostly obedient government handpicked by the party but. Per- Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, in, in, in other news, I just had a huge bite of that martini olive that I had <laughs> in in that, <laughs> that classic martini. And, oh, my God, that was delicious. How big of an olive did you have in there? I didn't really see the scale uh, on the webcam. Know, that, that, that thing was pretty big. I mean, it was uh, it was one of those martini olives. I don't, I don't even know what brand made it, but no. they were designed for martinis. It's one of those. Some people have a couple of mart, martini ol, or a couple of olives, those tiny little Spanish ones that they have in their martini. Yeah, I had like yeah. one big one. It was worth <laughs> probably about three like normal size manzanilla olives. Oh my god! And it was soaked in gin and delicious. So that's I don't the, care what anybody says. Hey, as I say, the best way to enjoy a martini is soaked in gin. Well, this topic is as big as the corporations that rule us. <laughs> so, <laughs> very I th- much so. I, I think we may have to. I mean, this is a perfect opportunity to slightly revisit episode two. So, I think we're going to be doing this more often. Um, future topics will necessitate the revisiting of past ones. Uh, so, uh, anything else that you wanted to add, JT, before. Uh, I, I think this is a good time before the music kicks in. I think this is a good time to... And we do know uh, it's coming. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I think it's a good time to uh, bring some a little piece of uh, enlightenment from our friend Thomas Jefferson, who said that, uh, and I quote this, I hope that we shall crush in its birth the aristocracy of our moneyed corporations, which dare already to challenge our government to a trial of strength and bid defiance to the laws of our country. Well said, Tommy. I'll drink to that. And I'll drink I, to that. I'll drink to that in two. Hmm. I think I just heard something. Oh, there it goes. Oh, boy. Yeah. Illuminati strike again. Yeah, you know here what? they come. Here I wonder, come I wonder if the build. I wonder if the Build-A-Bear group, uh, the Build-A-Bear Corporation <laughs> is actually like a front for the Build-A-Bear group. I hope so. That's got to be the most fuzzy and adorable conspiracy that I have ever encountered myself. <laughs> Have you ever gotten the urge to go to the Build-A-Bear store and, like, build, like, the most Lovecraftian monstrosity that you could possibly imagine? I can't say no. <laughs> can't say that I have, but I must say that I might. <laughs> so anyway, folks, if you have love mail, hate mail, future topics that you want us to discuss or any sort of cocktail recipe that you would think we'd enjoy or find utterly disgusting, email at us at uh, cocktailpartycongress at gmail.com. Yeah, and especially 
topic ideas. I have a feeling that we have mm-hmm. listeners who who would like to hear more about some of the rabbit holes that we tread over for the time being. In the interest of your time, my my dear listeners, this this one is going to clock in at about an hour. And bless us for having the the uh, the discipline for granting you and, this and the constitution of liver. <laughs> As I have said, we test the, the we test the the uh, the strength of our constitution, so America doesn't have to. Um, Wise words, indeed. Well, uh, I will also add that our um, our opening music is "Dark Sea Land" by Kevin McLeod. You can find that track and more beautiful royalty fee music at incompetech.com. I am never going to try to spell that again, as we learned in episode two. So go into the show notes if you want a direct link to that. And if you enjoy this show, please go on to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Share us with your friends. Give us a nice review. Go on to Google Play and do something different. Uh, do something similar. Not different, but similar. Um, <laughs> tell and- your friends. Tell your family. Tell your pets. Yeah, absolutely. Tell your pets especially that you're going to get some some howling dogs and some of the terrible terrible noises that JT and I make. Well, you know the the word the German word for hangover, Katzenjammer, <laughs> literally means the howling of the cats. Indeed. So that that German language tidbit and more in future episodes <laughs> of the Cocktail Party Congress. Well, uh, language is fun. It is. I love that linguistics. Until next time, dear listeners. In vino veritas. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The preamble to our Constitution is a source of much meditation when our political situation looks dire. In many historical moments, like what we see today, the focus has often been on the first three words, we the people, and rightly so, reminding ourselves that our nation's sovereignty is rooted in us and the public good can be as important as reminding our elected officials of the same. But asserting we the people is the ultimate value in that preamble can backfire on us. There is an emotional, self-righteous tone one can take when speaking those words, Those words can fuel populism, I believe a necessity in small doses, but a pernicious force if carried away with. The fire those words can ignite may burn us all. The alluring glare of we the people could also blind us to three more words, the next clause over. Three words that I think carry even more weight and hope. More perfect union. What a stunning admission that phrase is. Not perfect, but more so and perhaps never so. Our founders saw flaws in the Articles of Confederation which preceded the Constitution and sought to fix them. They also knew that political arrangements themselves were inherently imperfect and that those arrangements must change with the times. Times have changed, and so should our system. The assumption of change was also built in. Article 5 of the Constitution lays out the means and methods of amending it. The process does set a high bar, but the assumption was also that small changes would occur frequently, dealing with problems while they were still small and easily managed and agreed upon. The larger the problem, the larger the hurdle in solving it. And we've seen how hard constitutional contradictions can be to sort out. Slavery was the ultimate example of this. As Black History Month draws to a close, let us never forget that the ownership, exploitation, and dehumanization of Africans was part of the system at the beginning. It was a compromise that would now be inconceivable. It required a willful suspension of the political values born out of the Enlightenment that brought that constitutional convention together in the first place. It was an act of pure doublethink. The most charitable interpretation of this tragic historical fact 
is that those who understood the contradiction compromised on the probability that a better, more moral generation would come along and right the wrong and redeem America's original sin by amendment to form an even more perfect union. The war that accomplished this is a lesson. Deal with distortions while they are still small and manageable. Even if they seem daunting in the moment, sooner is always better than later. We have continually failed to remember this. The executive branch can spend over a decade repelling the same attack without a declaration of war. Political parties can seal off our democratic republic from anyone unwilling to play by their rules. The Supreme Court can be dominated by the same justices for generations, growing ever more out of touch with the rapidly accelerating pace of change. Unaccountable, anonymous money can influence our elections and our thinking. Today our system's wrongs seem unrightable, but we shall suffer for that attitude. The problems we face are too great and too numerous to fathom, but fathom them we must, and then we must solve them. I believe that we must convene a constitutional convention in our lifetimes, but we must first be worthy of such a task. A republic of heroes is necessary to enact the changes we need to see. We need bright, driven people to conceptualize the problem and its solution. We need well-ordered individuals to once more put quill to parchment, so to speak. And then we must look to a coherent strategy. Article 5 to the Constitution requires a vote by two-thirds of all state legislatures to call a convention. That amounts to 34 states. That on its own seems insurmountable, but I do believe that it can be done. You just have to start small and work your way upward. Do you know who your state representative is? Uh, there's a chance that you don't, because the federal government has been elevated to the role of universal solvent of all problems. But attention must be paid to your state houses. This is where the, tr the power truly lies. Not in Washington, but in Albany, and Denver, and Frankfurt, and Juneau, and 46 other cities across this country. Organize your communities towards a convention. Convince your neighbors. Convince them to convince their neighbors. And so on and so forth. Eventually, towns will organize cities, which will organize counties, which will organize states to accomplish great things. Convince your representatives, too, and if they will not be convinced, then replace them, perhaps even with yourself. But we must rise to the task before us, even if it takes all of our lifetimes to accomplish. We must re-examine all of the 18th century assumptions that still rule us, hold on to what works, reform what does not, and update what we can agree on. And if we work together, we could very well organize for a new union, so that for generations to come, we can say without irony that the Republic still stands.